I'm Corinne Linz, and you're listening to Infrointelligence, a podcast from Renew Canada magazine. In today's episode, the Government of Canada has informed the country of its plan to develop all future infrastructure through a green lens. This is a key pillar to the post-pandemic economic reboot and has included several funding programs and streams dedicated to building and renewing public infrastructure assets, which are less carbon-intensive, more resilient, and green. In parallel to these economic drivers, there is growing appreciation for, and accounting of, our municipal natural assets and the role that nature has in helping achieving our climate goals. Todd Latham, owner and founder of Actual Media and Renew Canada Magazine, tackles this important topic with an esteemed panel of industry experts. Hello there, my name is Todd Latham, and I'm the publisher of Renew Canada and president of Actual Media. Uh, Welcome to the second in our series, and it's going to be on green infrastructure and valuing natural assets. We've got a great panel together today, uh, obviously sponsored by Alice. Thank you very much to our friends at Alice for for supporting this event and and giving us the opportunity to talk about green infrastructure and natural assets. And of course, uh, we've got lots of good things to talk about. But before we do, before I introduce my speakers, um, I just wanted to acknowledge Uh, many First Nations and Indigenous people of Canada as the original stewards of our natural infrastructure. Uh, I'm in Toronto, which is the traditional territory of Mississaugas of the Credit, the Ashinabeg, the Chippewa, and Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. So thank you very much to our our, uh, First Nations who have uh, brought us this far, and we continue to acknowledge the green infrastructure that we're working on and we're discussing today. So without further ado, I'm going to start introducing our speakers. So first up is Laura Ellis. She's with Alice and uh, she is uh, going to introduce herself a little more completely. I'm not going to do the whole bio thing here, but as we get all the speakers on, we'll let them have a couple of minutes to introduce themselves. So Laura Ellis, Stephen Peck, Bailey Church of KPMG and Franz Gertin of Dow. We'll uh, do the reverse order. Uh, Franz, why don't we have you uh, do a, an intro of who you are and uh, where you're from, and, and we'll wait for Laura to join us soon. Bonjour. Well, very happy to, um, as I said before, to, to my colleague speakers, um, traveling to Canada, um, where uh, my hometown was in Gatineau, Quebec. Um, so virtually, I'm super happy to be um, on Canadian soil, looking forward to finally be able to cross the border um, when everything uh, settles down. Um, my role, um, I work for Dow. I started in Dow Canada. Um, just a bit of background, Dow is a global um, material science company. Um, we have assets in 109 different sites in 31 countries. My specific role is with the Global Environmental Technology Center, where I lead one of our newest technology pillars, um, which is around engineered natural technology. And that's kind of our our internal terminology uh, for green infrastructure. So really excited to be here and look forward to this discussion. Thanks, Franz. We had Lara up there momentarily. She's now popped out again, but we'll we'll keep uh, going. Um, over to you, uh, Bailey, in terms of introduction. Quick, thank you. Great, thank you uh, so much, Todd, and great to uh, join uh, you all from uh, snowy uh, Ottawa. Uh, my name is Bailey Church. I'm a, a partner with uh, KPMG. I uh, lead our public sector accounting advisory uh, service line for Canada, where I work with a, a, a lot of municipalities and all levels of government on uh, different complex issues. Uh, a lot of my background uh, has been in environmental liabilities, dealing with contaminated sites and, and nuclear waste and all kinds of other uh, other issues and how those get accounted for, which led me to a real passion for, for green infrastructure uh, because our standards are great at recognizing the liabilities and the costs, but we're not so great at recognizing the, uh, the, the benefits. So I'm thrilled to be here to uh, chat about with you all today. Thanks, Bailey. And uh, Stephen uh, and Laura, we'll go to you last to, to summarize and introduce. Stephen. Good, mor- Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Stephen Peck. I'm the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. We're a U.S.-based uh, nonprofit industry association uh, that has been working for the past 22 years to develop the green roof industry across North America and to some extent around the world. 
Um, I'm also the uh, co-founder of GEO, Green Infrastructure Ontario, which is a, a network of um, organizations, both associations and uh, non-governmental organizations and conservation authorities that have been working to um, improve uh, support for and financing of green infrastructure in the province of Ontario as a means of dealing with climate change and improving the resilience of our communities. Um, I've done a lot of work on the valuation of green infrastructure, um, the methodologies involved, and through an organization called the Green Infrastructure Foundation, also based in the United States, a charitable organization. We've been conducting charrettes with communities across the United States and Canada where we re-envisage an area uh, within the community with different types of green infrastructure. We do a design of what that might look like with community members and experts and, and government officials. And then we subject that to a cost-benefit analysis so people can leave with a, a concept and a vision, but also some of the, the hard numbers that are required to get to implementation. So delight, delighted to be here. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, Laura, thanks for joining us. Uh, now over to you for yeah, final hopefully, introductions. Hopefully I'm here to stay. I'm not, not sure what happened there. Um, so ALICE stands for Alternative Land Use Services. We work with farmers and ranchers and we restore, enhance and conserve natural infrastructure. So wetlands, grasslands, woodlands, riparian buffers, um, planting trees. That's the sort of thing that we do across um, Canada in 30 different communities. Um, working with farmers um, is important when we're looking at natural infrastructure because collectively they make up the largest landholder, private landholder in the country. Um, we've got two natural infrastructure pilot projects where we're looking at quantifying the benefits, mainly water related benefits of the work that we do in terms of water quality and quantity. So mitigating flood, but also reducing the, um, the cost of, of water. Um, you know, the problems that we have in Canada are exacerbated, exacerbated by climate change, but land use change over the past hundred years or so has really created um, problems that we, that we can partially, um, you know, rectify through, through the restoration of natural infrastructure. So happy to be here today. I'm really excited about hearing from, from my fellow panelists. Excellent. So that's um, everybody. So thank you all for a, for a being here again as speakers. Um, we've got a lot of really great questions already starting um, off. But the first one, and it came up in the green room earlier as we were getting ready for this, is defining green infrastructure. I think um, in, one of, in one of our other series, we talked about uh, defining blue economy and what that means. And I think it's important now uh, to get started today for each of you to maybe uh, define what is Green infrastructure. Who wants to start? I can take a, um, the starting line. Um, so we, we, for Dow's purpose, our, our journey with green infrastructure started back in 2011. And as a as a good science company, we did our research about um, really understanding what green infrastructure infrastructure was looking inside the companies for examples of green infrastructure and also um, external. And um, I sent a few links of the publications. Uh, we did some study uh, with the Nature Conservancy um, because we quickly realized that Dow is a material science company. We understand chemistry. We don't understand nature. And, and we really wanted that skill set to be embedded with us. So we formed this long-term collaboration. So to go directly to your question, we found that green infrastructure did not resonate well within our company, um, mainly because engineers, they like to build stuff. And to start with a terminology that says green within Dow, you're already losing the audience for greenwashing. So we decided that we needed to really define for Dow, what our journey would be and the best approach to that journey. So we changed the terminology to say engineer natural technology. And it's really about understanding that sometimes hybrid solutions may be the best solution. And so the, our definition is essentially to recognize the functionalities that nature might um, might uh, 
bring to down from an advantageous um, asset, right? But also understanding the impacts that we might have and how do we partner with nature in the best way possible. That, that's fascinating. So engineered natural ecology is, is how you would best define green infrastructure. Uh, engineered natural technology. Again. Okay. Sorry. No, that's good. Thank you for clarifying. Um, over to you, Laura or Bailey, whoever wants to go next, define green infrastructure. Yeah, so I um, I think when the term green infrastructure was first coined, it really meant what I what I refer to now as natural infrastructure, just to fur- further, um, you know, s- separate so there's less confusion. <clears throat> so when I talk about what Alice does, um, you know, th- things that grow, right, trees, grasses, um, shrubs, that, that's what, what we mean when we talk about natural infrastructure, wetlands, that sort of thing, um, which have all sorts of benefits um, in, in, in many different ways. Um, and then green infrastructure, if there's some component, um, like France was talking about, of, of an engineered component. So our natural infrastructure projects sometimes have a green infrastructure component. So once we fence off riparian areas from livestock to help with water quality, um, we, we use uh, solar watering systems so they so the, the cattle can drink. Or in southwestern Ontario, to help us reach um, phosphorus reduction targets, there, there are technologies that we can use to, just to soak up some of the nutrients that are coming off of farmland. So there's, but anyway, the two can work together very well, but our, our basis is natural. And we, we use that terminology just so that people understand the, the, the basis of what we're doing. Fascinating. So now we've got uh, two different definitions, but the same. Uh, but I'm curious, to, Bailey, over to you on how you define green infrastructure for KPMGs. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Todd. It, it's 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 an interesting term and one that is uh, w- loaded with a lot of different uh, different meanings and and, and different perspectives. To, uh, and to me, when we talk about green infrastructure, we're referring to something which, uh, as as Laura said has a uh, an, an engineered uh, component to it, uh, a man, an element of being managed, which distinguishes it from uh, from uh, certain other natural uh, natural assets. Uh, so that that element of of a of an engineered component uh, is is very important when we talk about green infrastructure. Uh, and when we look at the accounting standards, uh, there's a, a real distinction there between uh, also what is uh, what is a living asset and what is a non-living asset and uh, very different requirements uh, there that come into it. So uh, to me, I really f- focus on that engineered managed element when we talk about what's in the green infrastructure umbrella. Interesting. Stephen, you must have a ready to go definition for green infrastructure. Well, the Green Infrastructure Ontario has a pretty a broad definition, which I think encapsulates what the other uh, panelists have said. I mean, you can <clears throat> look at green infrastructure in terms of natural systems, you know, coral reefs, forests, uh, prairies, that type of thing, you know, and there's a lot of um, effort on underway right now to protect those areas uh, for the long term um, due to their multiple ecosystem services. Um, so that's sort of one big category fairly well established in terms of the work that's being done. Um, and and, and uh, so those natural systems have minimal inputs and outputs from a human perspective. Uh, and then the other component is the, the engineered systems where we're actively involved in either regenerating or creating uh, living systems that uh, are providing ecosystem services. And we're either doing it in the countryside uh, in terms of farms and riparian vegetation, or, or we're doing it in cities, on buildings, in buildings, uh, the urban forest, you know, where uh, green infrastructure has a lot of benefits to provide human inhabitants directly. And then the third category that we use are the systems that support our ability to have engineering systems like irrigation systems, like solar water pumping systems, like structural systems to um, create bioswales. There's a bunch of there are a bunch of products and technologies and, and services, automatic water monitoring and sensoring equipment. There's a bunch of stuff that supports our ability to engineer uh, uh, natural systems for the purposes of uh, getting those ecosystem services. So there's sort of three layers to sort of if you. 
Stephen's joining us from Vancouver, so it's it's a little early there, and the Wi-Fi is probably not so great. <laughs> but uh, I think you know I'll, I'll I'll wrap up what Stephen was going to is everybody agrees that what we're talking about today is is based on nature and and green infrastructure um, that we typically sometimes hear about renewables, so wind, solar. Um, that it can also be interpreted as green infrastructure, but today I think it's more nature-based uh, infrastructure, uh, and that's the common across all four of your definitions. Uh, welcome back, Stephen. Thanks. Um, I want to jump right into some big news that was uh, on, in the papers recently. Um, the Farmers for Climate Solutions Group has asked the federal government for $300 million uh, to reduce agriculture emissions by 10 megatons uh, and the greening of farms. And uh, I think this is all ready to go for the feds to approve it as part of their um, the funding program that they released in December. But I'm really curious from you, uh, Laura, and, and perhaps uh, France, are you both involved in, in this uh, Farmers for Climate Solutions group? Um, we, we're not a, a formal member. Um, they're, they're, they've got, they're doing some great policy work for sure. Um, you know, the, the government announced as part of its climate plan that there are um, over $3 billion um, available for um, natural climate solutions. So some of that money is going to Environment and Climate Change Canada, $631 million um, for a, a new natural climate solutions fund. There's money going to Agriculture Canada um, to support working with farmers. And there's also um, the, the bulk of the money is going for the 2 billion tree uh, planting program, which um, which should be starting up soon. They've, they've circulated some information to get uh, proposals in. So there's it's a huge commitment. Um, we're very happy to see that. And of course, we're, we're hoping that um, some of that funding will be coming our way. Uh, and Frost, any any work with that group? Or how, how's Dow going to interact with some of that federal money that's going to flow for things that Laura was just mentioning? Um, very good question. Um, I think what um, we announced recently our um, carbon neutrality um, targets um, for now, so June of 2020. So currently, um, we're in the space of even defining what is allowable as far as carbon credits and voluntary credits um, in order to offset our facilities. Um, to date, we're really defining our, our portfolio of projects and what will be amenable. Um, and so I don't have a, 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 a definite answer for you. We're, we're, sorry. In, in, we have a great partnership with the Olympic Committee um, and um, Dow participated as a carbon partner with the Olympic Committee. And our, our recent, I'll say, claim to fame um, was two projects. One was in um, really quantifying the um, soil sequestration capacity when performing um, uh, land um, improvements in ranching communities in uh, Brazil. And our other one was through replantation, reforestation of the Mississippi River um, area in um, with a partnership with REF, uh, so Restore the Earth Foundation, where we planted cypress trees um, in order to, again, gain those carbon uh, credits. So with our global view, I'll say um, um, we're taking also a, a global view and, and tying it to our, our um, asset base, I will say. Yeah. Um, Bailey and, and Stephen, you want to jump in on the, on the farmers for climate solutions and uh, are, are, is agriculture going to be part of this, you know, natural assets solution in the future? Yeah, from my from my perspective, uh, ab absolutely. I, I think there's a, there's a very important uh, perspective that, uh, that they bring to uh, the natural uh, assets uh, solution, uh, and, and I do think it gets very very interesting as we uh, expand out the the different stakeholders that are contributing to this. Uh, it, it it brings different uh, different uh, solutions and, and perspectives. So, positive, very positive from my view. Yeah, and what the thing I liked about the announcement, uh, or it wasn't an announcement so much as you know, request for funding from this group, uh, is they really want to apply uh, artificial intelligence and 
uh, sensor technology so that we're not using as much water on crops or we're using them at the right time. Uh, we're optimizing yields, um, all these wonderful things. And I don't know, obviously that's, that's where I was going with, you know, where is Dow and, and Alice uh, involved? Because I know that's the kind of work you both do. So um, that's good to know. We'll see more of that. Uh, I'm going to shift now to more about the natural assets, um, the word asset. Uh, most people think it's, you know, what's in your RSP. Uh, but from this point of view, obviously, we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, our natural assets. And, and how is that being accounted for? So uh, since uh, we have an accountant uh, services firm with us, I'm going to shift that over to you, Bailey, in terms of how are we counting our natural assets? Yeah, it's a great question, Todd. And the simple answer is we're, we're not. We, we do a terrible job with uh, accounting for our, our, our natural assets uh, here in, uh, in, in Canada and, and, and really uh, internationally. If we look at uh, our, our accounting standards, we take a very conservative view to what is actually recognized on the balance sheet. We, we, we more enable the recognition of uh, the liabilities and the costs related to these, as I mentioned before, with environmental liabilities, contaminated sites, we're, we're quick to put those on, 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 on book. Uh, we, we see cases where there are, are lawsuits being filed. And, and recently there was one around Southwestern Ontario regarding uh, the failure of a, a municipality to maintain uh, a wetland to prevent uh, certain uh, flood damage and flood related risks. Uh, so you, from an accounting perspective, we, we get that. We understand that there is a, uh, what we call a contingent liability that may occur that could get recognized. What we don't do is we don't recognize those assets. And the reason we don't do that is because they're, they're very, very difficult to measure, uh, with a reliable, with a reliable, uh, by reliable means. And uh, also, it's very difficult to demonstrate that we control the benefit. And, and that's what, from an accounting perspective, you need to show to recognize any asset. Uh, but logically, it doesn't make sense when we have a lot of uh, intangible assets, uh, rights, uh, goodwill, uh, complex financial instruments and investments that can fluctuate greatly in value. We put that on our books, but we don't put our natural assets on the books. Uh, so there, there are projects underway to enable that. Uh, and other jurisdictions are way ahead of us. Uh, South African accounting policies actually support the, the recognition and the measurement of natural assets. In certain cases, you can disclose them. In other cases, you put them right on your books. Uh, in the U.S., the, uh, the, the Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board, uh, which is one of their, uh, their, their standard-setting bodies, has also developed guidance around that. Uh, internationally, the Public Sector Accounting Standards Board has a larger project underway to look at what I, I termed earlier as these living assets. Uh, now, whether we will actually get to the point of having those on book as an asset or just something that we disclose remains to be seen. Uh, right now, the most we can see is uh, when we look at, uh, for example, the town of Gibsons, BC, in their financial statements, in their uh, their capital assets note, they provide a paragraph that says, essentially, by the way, we've got all these other natural assets which do provide benefit, uh, but we can't recognize them because the standards don't allow us to. Uh, and right now, that's the most we can do in our financial reporting in my my, my genuine hope is that that will uh, evolve and change. Laura, I'm going to go to you because I know you work directly with farmers and, and, and other corporations um, to, to value their natural assets. How, how do you uh, do this with them in terms of making the ROI? Yeah, so we our, our approach is that um, we're a payment for ecosystem services program. So we pay farmers. Um, we, we cover... Um, you know, we, we cover costs for project installation and then the farmers um, or ranchers are paid to manage them on an annual basis. So the value 
we had a conversation with um, C, with the with CRA about how, how that could possibly be charitable. And the decision was that because the benefit to society is greater than that, than that uh, which we're paying to the farmers, um, that there is a public benefit, a large public benefit component of the work that we do. So we're, we're uh, you know, our, our program is funded by a mix of funders. We have more than 60 funders from the philanthropic sector, government um, and, and corporate sector. Um, we are shut out of infrastructure funding though. Um, there are two large federal funding programs, the Disaster um, Disaster and Mitigation, I'm messing up the name, um, Adaptation Fund, and the um, Investing in Canada Plan. Um, you can't, you can only fund publicly owned infrastructure under both of those funds. And so we would like to see um, the definition and accounting rules changed so that when public benefit is achieved on private lands, that federal infrastructure funds are, there's some other eligibility criteria problems with those funds as well. But um, the investment uh, for natural climate solutions is very important and, and we welcome that and we, and we hope that uh, that will only grow over time, but really, um, the natural infrastructure part needs even needs more support, and so opening up infrastructure dollars long term, um, and and th through the mechanisms that uh, Bailey was talking about is really critical. So we'd like to see um, those funds change, or at least dedicate a part of of those billion dollar funds to to a, a self uh, you know a, a separate fund for natural infrastructure. That that's probably not public, right? So you're looking at private sector uh, use of those funds for common good, for natural infrastructure and green infrastructure that that serves a societal benefit. So that's that's an important distinction. Uh, France or Stephen, do you want to weigh in on you know the financial aspects of natural assets? <clears throat> well, to pick up um, on the comments that just came, I mean, one of the problems is that uh, a lot of the benefits, the ecosystem services that are provided, which are inherently fundamental to our health and well-being, don't get captured. Uh, they're they're not measured very accurately, and even when they are they are measured, they're not often translated into monetary terms so that we can do the proper accounting. Uh, so um, um, that's a real challenge, and there's only so far we can go. Uh, with that in terms of the, the, the tools that we've developed. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say for we uh, are doing a redevelopment in downtown, I don't know, London, Ontario, and there are several parking lots that are underutilized. <clears throat> and the design team decides they want to turn the asphalt, uh, which is contributing to stormwater runoff, and it's contributing to the urban heat island and air pollution. They want to convert one of those asphalt parking lots to a park, Okay. And so we know we can measure how much stormwater we can retain in that park. We can measure the air quality benefits of that park. Um, we can measure the urban heat island reduction from that park. Um, but it's very difficult to measure, for example, the health and well-being that comes to the community because they have this new park mm -hmm. asset. You know, it's very difficult to try to get numbers around that that have any real weight and standing. So there are some fundamental limitations in our ability to take ecosystem services and shoehorn them into the the um, economic and financial tools that we're currently using um, despite the advances of ecological economics however even without that benefit of that park there's a lot of things like the health benefits of that park there are a lot of we can make a pretty strong business case for investing a couple of million dollars to turn that um, uh, parking lot into a park um, because there are a lot of things that we can uh, calculate, like carbon sequestration and the benefit of carbon sequestration. Um, we can calculate the value of the stormwater runoff if there's a, a regulation that requires um, building owners to manage stormwater on site. Um, and, and we've been able to do that uh, to a certain extent and are continuing to work to develop tools that will enable decision makers at the local level to be able to look at opportunities for regeneration and redevelopment and come up with some numbers, uh, albeit imperfect numbers, but come up with some numbers that make a business case to city councils that, hey, you know, this is a really good investment for the community and here are all the reasons why uh, and here are the private and public benefits that are generated. On the federal government side, um, I, we Green Infrastructure Ontario with others has been lobbying for a dedicated fund. I mean, there are structural problems with the existing infrastructure funding. 
the, the bundles are too large. The, the, the financial bundles are often too large for the smaller type green infrastructure projects, for example. Um, there's a legitimate eligibility requirements. Sorry, it's a little early in the morning. Uh, problems. Um, so we do need to recognize that green infrastructure projects aren't all multi-billion dollar projects. They're not all major highways or bridges. There are a lot of the times they're smaller aggregates of projects. Uh, a lot of the times they're on private land, not public land. And we really need to evolve. There's an opportunity right now to evolve to a better approach so that when we as taxpayers invest in green and in infrastructure in our country, we know we're getting the best bang for our buck because we know that green infrastructure, particularly green infrastructure in cities where people live, delivers more benefits you know per square meter of leafy green space than any anything else that we can possibly imagine whether it's on a roof or a bioswale or the urban forest or the neighborhood park uh, and there's a hunger for that politically right now with 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 the pandemic people are realizing how important it is to have healthy green space in their communities so we really need to not pay lip service because we're not talking about 10 or 15 or 20 million dollars we're talking billions of dollars need to be spent on green infrastructure, particularly in urban areas across the country. And um, having a uh, fund, a dedicated fund, uh, that sets aside you know, some of the tens of billions of dollars, 15% is what we've been asking for, would go a long way to creating a lot of employment um, because these are more mom and pop shop type, uh, they're not uh, large uh, corporations and we're not implement, uh, in, you know, importing goods and services, a lot of the green infrastructure development work is done regionally and locally. So there's a lot of jobs per dollar spent uh, right across the board when you invest in green infrastructure. And yeah. hopefully the federal government is getting that message and we're gonna see more uh, movement in that direction over the next couple of months. Yeah, I think that echoes what Laura was saying in terms of changing the way the federal government perceives uh, funding for green infrastructure and getting that to the right place because the multiplier effects are there, uh, as you've mentioned. Um, I I'm going to turn to you, Franz, because uh, this is relevant. Uh, you've done some life cycle analysis of uh, wetlands, financial analysis. So is this kind of where we're getting to, where we can actually put some, some numbers on the table to demonstrate the value of natural asset investments? Um, so I'll say that um, I'll be very transparent. So our, our um, focus on um, green infrastructure, engineer natural technology, um, that started back in 2011. And I'm, I, I've seen a, a huge transformation just across the 10 years um, with how our personal company is um, coming around to recognizing the co-benefits right? Because in, in the, the first instance where we introduced our nature goal back in 2015, um, so after making that business case for Dow, right, uh, after convincing us that green infrastructure had real opportunities, and that goes back to the study of that wetland. So back in 1995, a, um, I'll say a forward-thinking engineer decided to build a wetland as a third as a polishing unit after, um, in, in the flow of our wastewater treatment. That, so the story back um, when that was built is that it saved us $15 million in, in capital. But when we first wanted to engage with green infrastructure, we said, well, let's look at that project. But um, back in 2011, and really do a retrospective financial analysis and also do, um, in, in accounting, do a replacement cost methodology. So how did that wetland compare in 2011 to a sequential batch reactor, which would have been the gray traditional? So what we found, strictly benefit to Dow. So forget about this co-benefits yet. Strictly benefits to Dow. What we found is the value of that project in NPV was $280 million. So, but that again is strictly benefit to Dow. Now, if I, I'll give you another example. More recently, we've built a 
um, we had a, a um, an ash pond that we needed to remediate in Midland, Michigan, along the Tibawasi River. The traditional solution there would have been to um, cap and treat that site, right? Make sure the water um, that had potential contamination with, with arsenic from the ash would never enter the river. And then it would have been on Dow's books forever. And we would have been responsible for treatment of any rainwater falling into this into forever as well. <clears throat> and without access to the community, to that land. What what we did is we um, um, piloted a tool that Dow developed, and it's all about quantifying ecosystem services that a property can deliver. And that's an internal tool to Dow, but it's also um, available publicly. Um, it was developed with the Nature Conservancy. So we challenged that project team along with that easy tool at hand, right, and said, well, um, if I look at the site today, that ash pond was overtaken by nature. It was a beautiful wetland in reality. So the cap and treat would have decreased all of the ecosystem services that the site had today. So we challenged the team and said, well, you can't do that. So think of something else. So we decided to look at the possibility of excavating the ash that was causing the concern putting that into a secure site, not along the river, turned the, the site into a wetland, um, which and with annexed um, community um, access to it and a riparian buffer along the river and saved $2 million, again, benefits to Dow only. Now the community, um, actually six months after we installed it, there was a huge flood and the downstream community benefited from that wetland, right? Compared to the cap and treat, um, we did not value that in our equation. But I'm super excited because we're working now um, at developing tools with external bodies um, on the concept of stacked benefit. So not only water, but carbon, habitat improvement, biodiversity improvement. And it's to come to a project and say, well, Dow, I'm ready to clean that wetland up. I have to do it anyways, right? What else can we bring in? Who else can we bring into the table that is ready to pay for those staff benefits um, from a project management standpoint? The other issues is I see that the regulatory and policy work that needs to occur. I'll say that one element that Dow was concerned about with um, it alluded back to those co-benefits, right? Is well, if I, if Dow builds a wetland, and those co and the flow of benefits goes off to the wetland, am I then legally responsible for supplying that level of benefits forever? Yeah. That's a big question for a company. So there's a lot of policy and regulatory work that needs to occur to allow to propel that and allow the correct solutions to be put in place, I will say. That's, that's interesting. That um, all, all blends into the practice of asset management. You're looking at life cycle analysis, but you're also looking at levels of service. Once you put in a piece of green infrastructure, whether it's a constructed wetland or pervious payment, you know, there is a level of service that is then expected from that. So let, let's shift to project discussion. Laura, I'm going to turn it over to you. And it's one of our questions, actually, is... Um, uh, give us some examples of projects that you've been working on uh, that that you think are exciting or or are worth mentioning. Um, so we've got two uh, natural infrastructure pilot projects. One is in the Lake Erie Basin. The other is upstream of Edmonton. So in both cases, we're working with University of Guelph to model the level um, to which we need to rebuild nature to reach um, certain outcomes. So Lake Erie, um, as all of your... Um, readers and, and members, um, of course, would know has the problem with phosphorus and algal blooms. Um, we know that those are costing Canada, you know, hard, hard, uh, hard numbers of $6 billion over the next 30 years. So that's in terms of commercial fisheries, um, tourism and water treatment. So we, we need to remediate the lake. It'll, it'll, it's important for our economy. It's important for our health. Um, so this project that we're that we're looking at is going to give us some numbers as to how we can influence the the reduction of phosphorus going into Lake Erie. 
um, as well as funding um, more, more natural infrastructure reconstruction in the basin. Um, in Alberta, our natural infrastructure pilot project um, is using the same sort of modeling, but um, we're working closely with City of Edmonton and EPCOR, which is the water utility, as well as our rural municipalities where Alice is, um, is established in, in, that, in that part of the watershed. And what we understand, which I think applies for much of rural Canada, is that the, the rural municipality benefits of reconstructing natural infrastructure are, are twofold. One is in terms of roads. So with the increasing wear and tear from climate change events um, and, and land use changes in the past, um, a lot of municipal budgets are going through repairing roads, um, culvert blowouts, damage to, damages to bridge, um, you know, having to resurface. So we can save municipalities a lot of money, a lot, you know, um, one of our staff uh, people at Alice used to work as a CAO at uh, a rural municipality in Alberta. She said close to 80% of their municipal budget was related to, to road um, construction and, and maintenance. So if we can reduce that figure, that goes a long way to pay for natural infrastructure reconstruction. And of course, um, out in Western Canada, a lot of um, communities rely on surface water for their drinking water and other needs. And so if we can keep what's um, through soil uh, protection, reducing soil erosion and keeping nutrients on farm fields rather than going into uh, riparian areas, creeks, uh, streams and rivers, then we can really reduce uh, water treatment costs um, significantly. Um, and that goes a long way to, to, to paying for natural infrastructure as well. So, you know, I think that um, avoided costs are always palatable when you're talking to decision makers. Um, and the more evidence that we can have about what the um, cost benefits are of reconstruction, the, the, the more successful we'll be in, in uh, redirecting funds to, to green and natural infrastructure. Um, yeah, that's, so it's, it goes back to the stacked benefits that uh, France was talking about it. And I guess what we need to do is, is quantify, you know, all these benefits so that they actually sit somewhere on, on either a municipal uh, balance sheet or, or on, on a private sector balance sheet. And I think that's coming, you know, with some of the ESG requirements that our uh, corporations are having to face. Um, and I think, you know, over to Bailey on terms of how this is going to be tracked uh, from a public sector accounting point of view, because I think under PSAB 3150, um, that's asset management lingo for, for those of you who don't know, uh, we, we do need to put natural assets on the books of municipalities. And I think that would really help folks like Alice and, and, and Dow and others to partner with, with government organizations. So can you, can we get into that a little bit more? Cause I don't, I don't, I know Ottawa's counting trees, for example, and they figured out that, a that an elm tree um, has a $2,000 value because of its uh, carbon sequestration and, and, and oxygen benefits. So where are we getting with this from a pure accounting point? Yeah, it's, it's a, a great question, Todd. It, it's, we, we are at a point where we have lots of data points that uh, can inform that, uh, that, that measurement. And you're, you're exactly right with uh, the disclosures around various ESG initiatives. There's a, a strong interest there in, in having related uh, in, uh, information on natural assets that are in other supplemental disclosures and uh, other things that accompany the financial statements. But we still have a, a gap in, in the actual financial statements themselves that uh, will take some real considerable effort to uh, to 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 get around, and, and there's a a definite bias there in how we do financial reporting. Uh, to to the example that that France uh, shared earlier, where you construct that water treatment plant, and say you spend a hundred million dollars on that water treatment plant, our accounting standards enable you to set that up as as an asset and it sits on your balance sheet and it it shows uh to other users it shows to credit rating agencies that you've got a a stronger asset base you spend that exact same money on 
a managed wetlands project that does the exact same thing even better. In fact, it even provides more future economic benefit. And even though we've got the measurement indicators and the data points, we can't put that on our balance sheet. So if you're a government looking at how do I, how do I best enhance my, my financial position? Uh, how do I look the strongest to, to the public, to the stakeholders? Which one are you going to invest in? And, and that's the, the inherent bias that we have in how we do our accounting and reporting. Uh, I, I believe that where we are going to move to is first a point of having uh, some guidance from a uh, what I'll call a supplemental disclosures perspective. I don't think we will get it in the financial statements, uh, even in the notes to the financial statements for a while, because the moment we put it in the notes to the financial statements, an auditor has to be able to audit it. And it, 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 it gets very difficult where uh, for a lot of these assets, we are using a different basis than what our, our accounting framework calls for, which is the good old historical cost basis. You, you record it on your books at the historical cost it was to you to acquire or develop that asset. Uh, other other uh, value measures aren't envisioned in our accounting framework. So that that's a battle. Uh, the other battle is on proving that we can recognize that there is a future benefit that we can control. Uh, and that's another thing that we've got to show. So I, I think supplemental disclosures and other information will be where public sector entities will first be moving to. Uh, I think we will see guidance developing uh, just like with the broader ESG initiatives around that. The most important thing in my mind for all public sector entities to be doing is to be building the processes and the data behind it. Uh, right now, we, we've got some good measurement approaches, uh, but it's going to be really, really important that those have adequate rigor, adequate process behind them so that when we do get the green light from the accounting standards, those can be audited and those can go in the financial statements. So building that whole process is going to be really critical. Yeah, no, no pun intended with green light. Um, I, I, I think there is definitely some need from uh, the accounting uh, profession to to make sure this happens because there's a lot of, uh, you know, benefits, the stack benefits, the the avoided costs. Um, all these things have to be included on on our balance sheets, um, and not. So we'll have to change the way accounting does that, and not the way we're talking about it. I think. But uh, exactly. let's let's shift now to uh, to the polls. Um, and everybody on the call, please take your time right now to go into polls, complete them, and then I'm just going to walk through uh, that because I think it's informative when we get some feedback from everybody, and uh, we'll have some 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 Q and A from this. So um, not everybody has voted, but uh, looks like when we ask what kind of green infrastructure projects should we be doing more of in Canada, uh, all of the above. <laughs> That's an obvious one. Um, uh, but I, I think uh, it seems like constructed wetlands is getting some more votes. Um, nobody wanted permeable pavement. Uh, that was one of mine um, <laughs> that I put in there. I thought I thought that was important to kind of do that. It's pretty easy. The cement industry and others are are all over that. Um, so it's an opportunity to work with the private sector to to avoid that uh, stormwater problem. Um, so that's interesting. Um, Stephen, we only got three for green roofs. Uh, you're going to have to get into the constructed wetland business, my friend. <laughs> mm -hmm. we, still have a way, we still have a ways to go to educate about the benefits of green roofs, I think. Uh, yeah. They're quite, they're quite amazing technology. And the cost, too. I think this is all kind of part of what we're talking about today is sometimes people think natural assets and green infrastructure is more costly than the regular way of doing things. And mm -hmm. that goes back to accounting to prove that, in fact, it is more economical to do what we've been talking about than to do it as a gray infrastructure. The um, other thing about it is like when you're doing measurements and so forth, one of the challenges is that a lot of institutions, particularly, for example, water, wastewater uh, uh, institutions, they'll only look at cost per liter of water um, 
you know, treated and all the other stock benefits that France was talking about, uh, you know, they don't get factored in to the analysis. And so they permeable pavement wins because it's the lowest cost per gallon or liter of, of stormwater managed. But in terms of, uh, you know, um, market penetration potential, uh, overall, you know, health benefits, biodiversity, all these other benefits, the, they miss the boat uh, in terms of what it is, but they're, uh, they have their sort of jurisdictional blinders on and they are only sort of able to look at, you know, one little benefit parameter. And so they hamstring green infrastructure and it's not just them, but other institutions do it, but they tend to hamstring green infrastructure benefits into a little box and then discount them. Yeah. So, I mean, it goes back to, we haven't done it that way before. So why should we start now uh, mentality to which we're all trying to change, of course. So uh, the next poll question was, what percentage of federal funding do you think is dedicated to living green infrastructure? Um, and so this is a guess because uh, uh, we're going to get the answer soon. I think, Stephen, you've got the answer to this. Looks like most people thought it was uh, 1 to 10 percent. Um, what's the answer here? Well, I think that uh, the answer is uh, uh, in it's moving around, uh, Laura. You know, there's been some expenditure recently, right, uh, the, uh, around green infrastructure, dedicated green infrastructure, the tree program, and so forth. But from an institutional perspective, it's mostly gray infrastructure, you know. And there's a lot of concerns right now that federal infrastructure dollars are going to, in fact, support highway development across the green belt in Ontario and actually damage farmland. Uh, destroy farmland uh, wetlands uh, in Ontario right now and a concern. So the flip side of that is how much green uh, green infrastructure investment is actually damaging our green infrastructure assets. And the positive would be how much of it's actually supporting and we need to limit the damage on the one hand and improve the uh, regeneration and restoration and engineering green infrastructure on the other. So it's sort of two sides of the coin. So the answer is, how much is being dedicated right now? It's about 0%. It's about 0%. <laughs> on the positive side, and we don't know what the percentage on the negative side is. A lot of big concerns about Terminal 3 and its impact in, out on Vancouver. You know, if, the, if this money goes into investing in infrastructure projects that are going to continue to draw down our natural or green infrastructure in the country, you know, that's a real negative as well. Yeah, so um, we're, we're going to get close to here. I'll, I'll, maybe, uh, Lara, you can talk a little bit about um, mm -hmm. what you think is is the right percentage of funding that should be coming from uh, from the federal government. You, you mentioned earlier that Alice is working primarily with uh, with farmers and ranchers who are private sector owners. So um, how, how do you envision the federal government supporting what they're doing to protect their natural assets? Yeah, I do, I do think... Um, you know, any, I mean, it's not hard to go up from zero, right? So um, it is important that uh, these funds are, are structured so that they, they actually incorporate the, the living part of, of, of green or natural infrastructure, because of course, green infrastructure includes transit in, in a lot of um, programs, right? So we actually need to make sure that, the, that uh, it, you know, it's split up to, to include the sort of things that we're talking about here. But it is, um, other countries are way ahead of us, um, as I think Bailey um, and the other panelists have mentioned. So, so I think there's a lot to learn. And there, there's maybe a misconception in Canada that we've got so much nature that we don't need to be rebuilding. But in southern Canada, that's certainly not the case. Um, there's lots of economic benefits to having the right mix between green and natural and built infrastructure. And the green natural infrastructure will extend the longevity of our of our built infrastructure and that's really important as well so what was the end well sorry what was the number then laura did you do you have a number i don't know up from zero sounds good to me right it's so yeah. much cheaper than built infrastructure even if we got five percent which seems like nothing yeah. we would be able to do a lot of work so i don't yeah. know i'm not gonna throw anything out there yeah. Well, maybe I'll turn it over to the editorial team at Renew to kind of come up with some uh, with some 
some percentages that we think and then actually delineate that percentage of funding to real projects. And I know, Franz, you talked about some real projects. Uh, Stephen, you talked about some good projects in municipalities. And Laura, you're working on them as well. So maybe what we need to do is do a summary of valuable projects that actually produce those stack benefits and, and um, you know, those, those hidden costs, avoid hidden costs. Um, and not, and not, yeah, don't include wastewater treatment plants in the, as green infrastructure. You know, that's, that, that's a big part of it, uh, Todd. Yeah, but, but going back to, to that, I mean, if a wastewater treatment plant has a constructed wetland, is that not green infrastructure? Well, I wouldn't call a constructed wetland a wastewater treatment plant. But if it's that's, part of your tertiary treatment, that's it is. That's a different animal. That's yeah. a living machine. You know, that's Todd, uh, John Todd, that, that stuff goes back 35, 40 years, that technology, you know. Yeah, so so I guess part of all this is advancing new technologies, not necessarily doing what we did before and just putting a green label on it. Right. Exactly. Well, I think um, you alluded to um, before, but I think it's what how we approach it is because you can really get into huge battles, right? What's what's gray, what's green? Um, the way that we like to approach it is to do a life cycle assessment and really quantify, well, um, what is the actual benefit um, to nature as well? So we've developed a nature scorecard that you do your, your life cycle assessment, you do your quantification of ecosystem services, and then the, that the data speaks in itself in where the benefit occurs. And I think we really have to also um, uh, broaden the boundaries of who and where is does the benefit occur? Um, within our nature goal, I couldn't care less where the nature benefit occurs. Um, somewhere it's benefiting nature, then I'm okay to count it towards our goal of, of $1 billion of projects that are better for nature, um, but show a positive value, again, strictly to Dow. Um, I think we would benefit because green infrastructure in a way is novel. And in order for it to advance, right, you have to bring in these case studies and you have to do your pilot studies. You have to understand that when I build a wetland, I'm building a, an infrastructure project that instead of losing value every year, like a pump and a piece of concrete, it actually increases in value because the biodiversity that is there continues to grow. Um, the wetland example that I gave you back in, in uh, 1995 that was built, it, it was um, uh, accounted for for 25 years in value, but we're surpassed that and it's still, um, it survived the hurricane. <laughs> so to me, it's, that's what needs yeah. to, um, to um, be accounted for. Yeah, I, I like your idea of a scorecard. I think, uh, you know, that fits in well with uh, what Canada is already doing with its infrastructure report card. Maybe we need to put a natural assets uh, category in there and start scoring um, not only municipalities, but uh, provincial jurisdictions on how they're doing with natural assets. Uh, we're running uh, at the end of our time here. Um, wanted to give uh, each of you... Uh, Literally five, ten seconds each to have a closing sort of what do we need to do next? What are the action items now? I'll start with you, uh, Stephen. Uh, we need to see more infrastructure dollars dedicated to living green infrastructure city, city, uh, systems. And I would argue in cities in particular, uh, mid to large cities across uh, Canada uh, would be an area to focus the engineered component of that. And we okay. need... Um, we're going to get a lot of bang for our buck in terms of jobs and health and well-being and uh, resiliency if we do that. Uh, Bailey. We need to have transparency around our green infrastructure on our public sector financial statements. It's absolutely critical that we have a clear line of sight on the, the value that these assets bring, as well as a clear line of sight on our uh, responsibilities for, for properly managing these assets. Uh, for recognizing where there are potential impairments to these assets. We, we do it so well now with other things like complex financial instruments. We don't do it well with natural assets. Thanks, Bailey. Franz, I think one it's, action it's, item. What do we need to do? 
make the business case for nature. So bring up your uh, look at it through not a nature lens, but what is it? What's the business case for it? That will push dollars. And Laura, final words on what's next and what do we need to do? Yeah, I agree with all the other speakers. Um, we need to increase resources for the players who are active in this right now. So that includes groups like Alice, but watershed districts, conservation authorities, people that are actually rebuilding natural infrastructure and, and making the case for it as well. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, appreciate you being on with us. Uh, again, thank you to Alice for supporting this. So thank you, everybody, and thank you all who uh, were here and posed questions. I think it was a great conversation, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Infraintelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine. You can find out more by following Renew Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting renewcanada.net.